I'm Maserati E. And I'm Chris Redlitz. Welcome to The Last Mile Radio. On Sirius XM, we paving the road to success. No lie, I've been on a mission for a while. Finally, I see the last mile. I've been on a mission for a while. Finally, I see the last mile. Hey, paving the road to success. I'm paving the road to be my best. I'm paving the road to success. Yo, E. Chris, what up, what up? You know, it's really interesting. We've talked a lot about the bipartisan nature of what we're doing in criminal justice reform. Most definitely. Right? Most definitely. Republicans and Democrats crossing the aisle for a common cause. Definitely. We erasing the lines and creating circles. Circles. I love that. When you first said that, that makes so much sense. Right? I got to cite my source on that. I got that from Antoine Banks-Williams. Okay. Shout out Banks. Shout out Banks. Shout out Banks. We all know Banks. For sure. Co-creator of the Ear Hustle. Yep. Give him his true Got to give props. him his flowers. Yeah, definitely got to give him his flowers. Paving the way. <laughs> so, you know what's interesting is we talk a lot about bridging that gap and crossing the aisle in politics. Right. But it actually can happen in some cases in news. Definitely. That right there, I feel, is an indicator of truth. You yeah. know what I mean? When you when you got both sides telling the same story, it got to be some truth there. So it comes to light because this whole recent issue with the lawsuit with Fox News and Dominion and all that, mm-hmm. and Tucker Carlson being fired, right? Yeah, that's deep. I mean, I think, I think a lot of times, you know, when things come out, it, it can be shocking, but it could also be shocking in a good way. I think sometimes, you know, when the dark comes to light and you're faced with a certain type of truth, it's enlightening. And what that enlightenment does can begin to change your thought process. And with that change of thought process, you know, I'm a firm believer. People treat you the way they see you. And that could be lethal when you're not seen as an equal. That's very true. You feel what I'm saying? I so do. This begins to alter that overall perspective. Because let's be real. A lot of things in the media, it, it conditions the mind. You know what I mean? It conditions the mind and it creates perspectives. And that overall creates a sense of treatment. Yes. So now when things become, again, enlightened, that begins to alter that conditioning. So I had a personal experience here. Mm-hmm. In 2019, we were in Indiana and Fox wanted to come and Laura Ingram wanted to come interview me and the governor about criminal justice and about the last mile. Mm-hmm. So, as you know, I'm not a conservative. This is true. Is that fair to say? <laughs> I would definitely say that's fair to say. <laughs> for sure. You're one of the most liberal people I know. That's for sure. So there's a reluctance, right? I mean, you you don't know what you're going to get. Mm-hmm. And when you're on national TV, it's a permanent record. Right. Right? Legit. So my experience, though, was very different. How so? It was crossing the aisle again in a, from a media perspective mm-hmm. that we did an interview she was very thoughtful in the interview, represented TLM as we would want TLM represented, and they did a one-hour special on Thanksgiving Day about the last mile. Immediately what comes to mind for myself, again, when you got several parties saying the same thing, that's an indicator of truth. So that's, to me, showing the impact and the true results of what we do at the last mile. Yeah. So I think we, as a society, sometimes go to the extreme and peel back. Right. We did that with criminal justice. You know, we had all the legislation in the early 90s. Right. You know, with lock them up, tough on crime. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Three strikes law, all of this. And we went for, for several decades. And then there became this public awareness of, hey, we've gone too far. Right. We built too many prisons, too many people in prison. So what I'm saying is, like, are we going to see that in media? Because we've so. gone to an extreme, and now we're seeing, well, you can, you can only take it so far, and there are repercussions. Right. Right? Definitely. I think we will see that in media. I think we are seeing that in media. That's what we're doing. I think we quite literally begin to pave the way for this to become normalized, and we can get a sense of truth in the media because that's, that's hard to find I feel like you know what I mean the media is so corrupted right it's hidden agendas all the time so you got to be very like choosy you got to pick and choose and what you choose to digest so I think we can quite literally begin to alter that standard you know what I mean and set that tone because ultimately 
results impact the future in, in various ways, right? But what I mean by that is the results of what we do and the impact that we're creating, I feel like it'll eventually come to a point where in order to compete or in order to even, like, be taken seriously, you got to be real. You know what I mean? Because I feel like now we at a point where people starting to wake up and people's tired of being sheep, people tired of getting conditioned, and people want to think freely. But to right. do that, it really depends on where you get your information from. So how do you consume news? So I got various places I do it, right? Of course, you got TV, for sure. And like I said, I'm picky and choosy with that. So like I don't just watch just one side of the line. Myself, I, I don't identify with a party. I'm not a Democrat or a Republican or anything like that. You know what I mean? I feel like both, you know, kind of had a cons and pros, if we will. So I'm, I'm checking out both sides of the line in the middle. I'm checking out everything. And then I try to find that common thread of truth. Where's the where's the common ground that in perspective from both parties? But where do you get it, though? I get it on social media. I get it on TV. I'm watching CNN. I'm watching Fox. I'm watching everything I possibly could. I get updates from Google when anything happens in the news. Google alerts me with news alerts from pop culture to prison news, various things, different political news from different forms of legislation that come out down to overall like movements. You know what I mean? Right. So when you're in prison, though, it's different because you prison only definitely different. you only have, you know, when you're in in a cell just mm-hmm. to give people a sense of and you have a I think it's now a 15 inch screen. It used to be <laughs> yeah. a 13 inch. They screen, bumped it up. They bumped right? it up. But you have your screen. You basically have three channels. This is true. Well, you can have an antenna pad and get digital channels. So, like, I, I remember, I recall getting up to, like, 50 channels. And when I was in prison, I used, I used to not even, like, watch American news. I used to, like, watch world news. There I, you go. That's I, what I'm saying, right? I felt like world news was more real. I used to hear about stuff that was going on in America that wasn't publicized in American news. You know what I mean? Because, again, it's a lot of things, you know, that's going on behind the scenes. And it, for whatever the reason may be, right? I try to consume news from as many different places as possible and try to find that common thread of truth before overall making a decision of what I feel I believe is true or what I agree with or disagree with. So there's prison-generated news, mm-hmm. San Quentin news. Right. <laughs> How is that viewed from a prison perspective, from those that are residing inside? Is that the truth? I would say absolutely, right? And the reason being, so before I actually even got to San Quentin, I already trusted the San Quentin news because it's a level of obligation when it comes to representation of people that's incarcerated. And I knew others that were there that I trusted that also kind of influenced me to trust them, if that makes sense, right? right? So they, they and for me, they had the credibility there. But also, it was a bunch of people around me. You know, we took that at face value. Anything that was in there, we knew it was real because it comes from within the community. Yep. Not just saying that that automatically makes it right. And admitting there is a bias there. But after actually going to San Quentin and meeting the people that run the news and everything and seeing how much effort is put in to make sure, you know, know that everything is accurate and efficient like it was a safe bet to do it as well that further confirmed you know that belief in truth as far as what was being portrayed in media through san quentin news right well one of our jobs here is to bring on people with perspectives definitely try to give the truth definitely and our guest today is one of those that also will be conveying that truth (laughs) definitely definitely and another thing i feel like it's extremely important to highlight what we talked about earlier, right? And that's erasing these lines and creating Mm -hmm. circles, erasing these lines in the sand. I think in order to make a difference and really shift the culture as a whole, especially in America, like we can't have these lines. We we just can't. We're going to see too many issues. Prime example, the issues that we face a lot, like in criminal justice reform, every state has a different set of rules. Yep. And that's due to the lines in the sand. Right. You know what I mean? So it's like once we begin to erase those, I think as a whole, we'll be able to see a huge shift in a progressive direction for sure. And it's going to get real for sure. We're going to be chopping it up with my dog, Shaka Gore. Oh, my goodness. We got a very poetic author in the house. It's going to go down. So he's going to tell us the truth. He's going to tell us the truth. We're going to hear it raw and uncut. It's going down for sure. So make sure to stay tuned right here to the Last Mile Radio on Sirius XM. It's going down.
Yes, 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 and we are back. We are back. Welcome to the Last Mile Radio right here on Sirius XM. It's going down. It's going down. And I'm excited to announce our next guest. Chris is going down. Who we got in the building, man? We got Shaka Sangor, and he is a legend. Absolutely. <laughs> Phenomenal. Oh, y'all are far too kind. But say more, say more. <laughs> Poet, author, you feel me? The co-sign from Oprah. Come on, man. Come on, man. He in the house like teeth in your mouth. It's getting real. Got to cite my source on that, too. Got that from my boy, Mezro. Shout right. out, Mezro. But yeah, man, it's going down. How you feeling, man? Welcome to The Last Mile. I'm great. I'm super excited to be here. Um, you know, this is special. This is a special one. And I'm proud of everything that y'all are doing with this work and telling our stories in a meaningful way. So uh, this is going to be one of the highlights of my day. That's what's up. That's yeah. what's up. Definitely one of mine as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, we so appreciate it. You and I have uh, have a bit of a history, and we've known each other for a while. And um, there's so many parts of your story that are so incredible. Your background, what your transformation has been, and it's been well chronicled. Mm. But. We got to go back and tell mm-hmm. a little bit of that story. You might get tired of telling the story. <laughs> I'm not sure. But um, it's so amazing. And, and part of the reason that we it's important to tell that story, because those that are listening are family of incarcerated, people mm-hmm. are incarcerated. Um, and your story definitely gives people hope mm-hmm. because you came from a point of no hope. Yeah. So can you take us back a little bit in the origin story for yourself? Yeah, that, you know, that's a great question, and I agree with you. I, I do at times get tired of telling the story, but I think it's, you know, one of the things that um, I recognize is an important part of my journey is the ability to articulate what that experience was, uh, not just for myself, but for so many others who are currently in those experiences. Um, you know, I, I grew up in the city of Detroit, hence my ever-present uh, Detroit Tigers hat. Detail to build it. Yeah, I always got to represent for for where I come from. But I grew up in a in a household that, on outside looking in, really was like the model for working class, middle class America. Uh, my mom was primarily a homemaker. My dad was a uh, worked for the state in mental health. He was also a, a reservist in the Air Force. And, you know, so when you look at that model, you think, oh, man, this this is the great, you know, uh, um, environment to ensure a safe passage through life. And unfortunately, you know, there were some very complex issues in my household, including physical abuse, but also, you know, my, my parents separating back and forth and eventually divorcing. And, you know, when I ran away, I was about 14 years old. Um, you know, growing up, I was an honor roll scholarship student with dreams of being a doctor. And unfortunately, like many kids who, you know, leave their households for a variety of reasons, I found myself, instead of being welcomed into a loving and nurturing environment, I got seduced into the crack cocaine trade. And this was when crack cocaine first, like, hit the Midwest, like, 86, uh, 85, 86, somewhere in there. And within the first six months, I experienced every um, traumatic part of that culture. You know, my childhood friend was murdered. I was robbed at gunpoint. I was beat nearly to death. And one of the things that, you know, I, I never forget is the time when I was beat, is laying on the cold bathroom floor in the pool of my own blood mm-hmm. and asking this question, you know, what kind of world do we live in where this happens to children? Mm-hmm. And sadly and unfortunately, I've never received an answer that made any sense to me. And despite those early, you know, adverse experiences, I continued on in that culture. And about three years in, when I was 17 years old, I got shot uh, multiple times standing on the corner of a, a street in, on the west side of Detroit at the time. And that moment, what I didn't understand that I know now, really inflicted, you know, psychological and emotional damage, uh, which, you know, people call it PTSD now. Um, But I was processed through the hospital, bullets extracted, patched back up, and literally sent right back to the neighborhood where I got shot at with no support. There was no psychologist, no psychiatrist, no emotional support from anybody in, in, in that environment. And, you know, I was left with the reality of a kid trying to navigate this traumatic event. And what I left with the, from the hospital with was this volatile recipe, a recipe that's very familiar to, you know, urban centers when we're talking about gun violence and what's happening in our communities. You know, this this recipe of like paranoia, anger, frustration, Um, and a narrative, you know, and that narrative said that if I found myself in conflict, I would shoot first. 
And 16 months later, um, I got into a conflict about 2 o'clock in the morning, and I shot and tragically killed a man named David. Um, I was subsequently arrested, charged with open murder, and sentenced to 17 to 40 years in prison. And in Michigan, you know, the way our sentences are structured is your minimum, like this is the minimum amount of time you serve, but your max is the only time that you are guaranteed to serve if you don't, you know, uh, uh, get through that environment unscathed. And so I went into prison angry, bitter, frustrated. And I was fortunate that early on I encountered what I call one of my three miracles. And this was, you know, these incredible mentors. And they weren't your typical mentors who come from the outside world with a message of redemption and the hope. These were actually men who were serving life sentences. And these men saw something redeemable in me, even when I didn't see it in myself. Um, and we bumped heads a lot. You know, I was the young guy. I think I was the youngest guy at maximum security at that point. And, you know, I remember turning 20 years old in maximum security around all these adults and, you know, they would be just come to me and be like, youngster, you know, if you don't do this, you're going to end up serving life. And in my mind, I was already serving life because, like, you know, at 19, you can't even imagine, like, two weeks down the line, let alone, like, you know, two decades. Um, but, you know, they were they, they, they were persistent. And it took them a while. But these, these guys were so crafty and so strategic in their thinking that, you know, they figured out a way in. And the way in for me was... Uh, reading, you know, they uh, introduced me to writers like Donald Goins and Iceberg Slim, and the stories that they was writing, like Pimp and Dauphine, and you know, these books were telling the story of environment I was, you know, familiar with. And so, once I started reading those books, what I didn't realize was that those books would run out relatively quickly because back then, you just didn't have a ton of of authors who were writing about the urban experience. Right. Uh, you had, you know, some of the great philosophical. Uh, bodies of work by black authors, you know, the Baldwins and, and things of that nature. But I wasn't primed for that yet. And once those books ran out, I was like, man, all right, what am I going to read now? And so I found myself reading basically everything, you know, Sidney Sheldon, Stephen King, Jackie Collins, uh, Westerns, you know, you name it, I was reading it. And eventually that reading led me to Malcolm X's autobiography, which I believe is one of the greatest, um, you know, testimonials of human transformation. And so at that point, Malcolm became kind of like a guiding light, you know, and not so much in, in terms of like his, you know, religious or spiritual philosophy, but more so in terms of his personal accountability and transformation. And I'll never forget when I read that he actually had read the dictionary from A to Z. Yeah. I was like, wow, this is like crazy. And so I started off on that, that journey. So I do have an assortment of words that are like weird and, and not <laughs> typically used within uh, conversations. But that discipline and that approach to approach to turning his life around was something that resonated with me. And so I began this journey um, of transformation in, in that environment. That's big. That's big. It. It's so much that I can relate to, man. Yeah. Being incarcerated at an early age, the urban books actually was one of one of my ends as well to like mm -hmm. overall reading. And ironically, the autobiography of Malcolm X was a huge turning point for me too when I was in mm -hmm. CYA, bro. And that mm -hmm. that was one of the things that ultimately made me divulge in like deeper content type reading. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Right after the autobiography of Malcolm X, I read Roots and started yeah. getting into like more like um like self help books and all these type of things. So I could definitely relate to that bro that's deep man that's big yeah. real talk it's a trip and also you know we talk a lot about ogs and you experience that same issue you're oh, the first sure. positive role model you experience was an old Folsom a level free free prison which isn't this place you'd expect to definitely to, to get a positive <laughs> role model right definitely not definitely not but it, it, it's a trip to see you know ultimately that influence through reading out of all things. Mm. You know what I mean? I think that's mm. something that's ex unexpected in our experience for people that's unaware with these type of experiences. You know what I mean? Like, mm. a lot of people just feel like when you go to prison, you just getting deeper in criminality or you sitting on a bunk twirling your thumbs. Like, a lot mm. of people don't understand how the origin of growth really begins, you know, when that gets sparked from being enriched with new things. You know what I mean? Mm. And, 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 and taking that chance on ourselves from getting out of our comfort zone 
going to be willing to try something different and try something new. And then we realize we we find things that we like that we would never would have thought we would have. You know what I mean? Yeah, and it absolutely. just continues the journey. Yeah, you know, I, I, th I think it's really important to underscore the impact of literature in that environment. And I also think it's important to underscore why uh, so many of us discover it when we're in that environment. Uh, when I was growing up in school, like, they just didn't have books that spoke to a reality that I was familiar with. You know, I, right. didn't, I didn't get introduced to Malcolm until I was actually in prison, which was crazy. You know, when you really think about, you know, this man who's, um, you know, so much a part of his journey parallels what's happening in the world today, you know. And when you talk about, like, literature, it's one of the things that inspired me to become a writer is is I realized that if you can, if you can, give kids books or young people books that are reflective of the world that they come from and they can see themselves in those books, it'll inspire them to like start reading more. You know, I became extremely curious after I read Malcolm. Uh, one, I was super impressed by his intelligence and I was impressed by his curiosity. And so Malcolm was reading everything. So I found myself reading everything, philosophy, right. world history, culture, you know, you name it, I was reading it. Um, but I never would have got there if it wouldn't have been for Donald and uh, Donald Goins and Iceberg Slim, who was really writing about a world that I was familiar with. Definitely. The transformation is real, man. The transformation is real. One thing I want to know, man, like, how do you emerge in a society that's so unforgiving? Like, what, what, what are you doing now to help with that? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, when I when I when I was preparing to get released from prison, I was super naive. You know, I thought. I had served my time, I would come home, and that there would be opportunities for me to redeem myself. I thought it would be easy to find employment, uh, given that, you know, it seems to be like a labor pool shortage in the world. Um, I thought it would be easy to navigate a lot of the things that just come with stabilizing your life after incarceration. And when I got out, I found the complete opposite to be true. Uh, there were so many barriers to reentry, and, you know, that, that was... Um, that was one of the most difficult reckonings I had to face mm. was like, wait a minute, this world does not give a damn about people coming out of prison. You know, like they just don't care. Right. And, you know, where I was fortunate at was one, to be literate, um, one, you know, to be determined, you know, like there's a, a, a determination that has to happen. And I'll, and I'll say this to the families who have loved ones incarcerated, the work has to start in prison. Definitely. Like, you can't wait till you get out and try to turn it around, you know? So I had done a lot of the tough work, um, you know, from 1999 to 2004, I was in solitary confinement. Mm -hmm. And when I was in that environment, I began to journal. One more time, you said from 99 to 2004? Yeah, so about four and a half years straight, I was in solitary confinement. Wow. And, in that environment, I began to journal, and and that that was inspired actually by Socrates. Um, oh, in the Apology, Socrates said that unexamined life isn't worth living, hmm. and so I started with an essential question, and that question was, how did I go from an honor roll scholarship kid with dreams of being a doctor to being in prison for second degree murder? And what I did is I began to journal. I began to go back, and I began to unpack the early traumas that, had, that I had experienced in my life. And then what I found was there was a theme of so many traumatic events in such a short window of time that it was impossible for the outcome to be me becoming a doctor. Mm. Um, and once I began to kind of unravel those themes, I was like, wow, I had adopted a narrative based on the traumatic events in my life. If somebody can beat me and leave me for dead, I didn't feel like my life had any value. If I can get shot up and then processed through the hospital like, you know, a, a car in an auto factory, like that lack of emotional connectivity to what my true needs were meant I was of no value to anybody. And so I began to journal and assign value to the things that, you know, I found meaning in. You know, so I began to assign value to my ability to read. Um, and then I began to challenge myself. You know, I, one of the first challenges was if you are intentional about turning your life around, then you have to prove it to yourself. Um, like many young people who go through these carceral systems, which start typically start at an early age, you know, I would tell my, myself that story. If I get out of this one, I'm never getting back into trouble again. Um, but that really wasn't for me. That was for my parents. That was for my community. And so I knew that whatever I had to do, 
I had to do it for me. And I had to do it in a way that challenged me. And so my first challenge was to write a book in 30 days or less. And I mean, you know more than more than most that in solitary, there's no laptop, there's no right. you know uh, uh, you know word processor. It's literally old school pen and, and, and pad. But setting very clear parameters that I'm going to finish this in 30 days was the challenge to myself. That if you're serious about turning it around, you have to make a commitment to something that you're going to honor. And if not, then you're not ready to turn it around and you'll end up serving out this whole entirety of this 40 years, you know, prison system if you don't die first. That's deep. That's deep. And you're listening to Shaka Singur in the house with us on the last mile radio on Sirius XM is going down. So you you read all these books and you put this idea that you're going to write a book in 30 days. What was the motivation there? And was did you consider that like a one-off or did you consider this something that could become maybe an avocation, turning an avocation into a vocation? Mm. Yeah, early early on, um, you know, it was just a, a, a proof point that I can finish something. So when I was journaling, what I realized was that I had started a lot of things, but I had never completed any. Mm. You know, I started college when I was in prison, and they took college out, so I didn't complete my degree. Um, you know, I had started to go to the military prior to going to incarceration, but I never followed up. You know, I, I was, you know, kicked out of high school. And so for me, it was about completion. Can I actually finish the thing that I start? But once I began to go on the journey I fell so madly in love with the written word mm. uh, as a art form um, and the ability to impress myself and say, wow, you can articulate stories and, and, and describe with great detail and description and in a way that's comprehensive. Like that was mind blowing to me. Um, you know, even now when I go back and read some of my earlier works, I'm like, God damn, you can write. <laughs> um, and by the way, yeah, I've been to your house, yeah, and I've seen all of those manuals that you have, yeah, literally paper and yeah. stacks, yeah. That's just an archive, yeah. That's that's really incredible. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I have I have books that are unpublished that I that I wrote, you know, twenty some years ago, right. you know, and I'm actually wow. in the process of reimagining some of those books now. I'm a much more advanced writer, you know. I really understand the editorial process a lot more profoundly. Uh, but for me, it was it was love. It was like literally love at first sight. And so I wrote that first book. Did you write that in prison? I did. So the first like one I wrote. handwritten or yeah, typed it? No, handwritten. That's so the first deep. one, those, those are the manuscripts that That's Chris deep. got a chance to see in, in my home. I still have those. And so, remember, you you yeah. were the little golf pencils, right? Yeah, you had a little flimsy ink pen. Like Damn. it's almost like. Wait, this ink. one you in the hole? This is solitary, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, so I wrote I wrote the first one, and then I had this moment where I was like, first I was like super excited and, you know, jumping in the air like, damn, I finished a book. Yeah. And I was like, well, a book isn't a book until you send it to somebody. And, <laughs> you know, I put it on a fish line, and I sent it to a guy in a cell across from me. And I remember the heart-stopping feeling I had once that book slid under my door. It was my only copy. Right. And if for anybody who's a writer, it's like, you know, what you write originally, you'll never go back and reproduce in that manner. Right. And so I was nervous, you know, like, is this guy going to get my book back? We're in solitary. There's nothing I can do if he doesn't until we get to the big yard. Um, but he came back to the door and he was like, man, this is one of the greatest books I've ever read. No. Wow. And initially I got like so excited, you know, and then I thought about it. I was like, well, he's in solitary confinement. It's not like he has tons of <laughs> options to entertain himself. Of course, it's fascinating. Um, but it challenged me to write a second book because I, I believe that all of us are capable of doing something great once or something good once. But I think the mark of greatness is the ability to do something good over and over again. If you think about, you know, some of the greatest, you know, athletes in, in, in the world, like I'm a big sports fan. You know, you think about what makes, you know, Jordan, Jordan, right? I'm from, I'm from Detroit, but I don't, you know, I don't really like Jordan in that way. But <laughs> love the sneakers, though. But, uh, but what I've always appreciated is the ability to execute good over and over, which is what makes him great. Yeah. And so I wrote a second book, you know, and I was like, man, I'm, I'm really on to something. I started a third one, and then I fell into the deepest bout of depression that I've experienced oh, wow. probably up to this point in my life. 
And that depression was sparked by the realization that I had this gift and I had no way of giving birth to it. Wow. You know, I'm sitting in solitary. I'm like, I got these manuscripts. What do I do with it? Right. You know, and so when I fell into that bottle of depression, I went back to reading the books that I actually had. So I would just pick up random books and read through pages for encouragement, you know. Um, and one of those books, As a Man Think of, talked about thinking into existence the reality that you want. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, okay, all this, you know, this kind of like philosophical foo-foo, like what's really here, Right. And so I just challenged myself, like, to think about what do I want my life to be? What does it have to look like? And what are the steps I need to take? And I realized that, you know, in order to give birth to this dream, I needed access to a typewriter. And I needed the ability to type these manuscripts up so I could send them out to the world. And so that meant I needed to get out of solitary confinement. So there was a thing of, of, of you know, um, questions I asked the universe to bestow upon me, the opportunity to get out of prison, you know, out of solitary and then out of prison. What does and that so, look like? Asking the universe questions. Yeah, so for me it was like, you know, we're gonna we're gonna have this agreement, right? I wanna manifest into my life the things I believe. Is this like verbally spoken or Absolutely. is this like this in your mind and so your heart? It, so it was verbally spoken but also written down. Oh. And okay. what how I how I drew this conclusion was when I was doing the journaling, I went back and I realized that I thought myself into prison. Mm. And it's something that, you know, especially in the work of, of reform, we don't talk about the personal accountability. Right. And and it's not to say that there's not structural and systemic racism, like all the things that lead us down this path or, you know, the abuse and PTSD. But there is a part of it that we don't talk enough about, which is personal agency. And that journaling, basically, I was able to see so clear how I had programmed myself. Now, there were traumas traumatic events that led to that programming, but nonetheless, it was a programming. And so I'm like, oh, I thought myself into this environment. You know, I can't even mm. tell you how many times where I said that I'm going to shoot first if I get into a conflict. Right. There's an outcome of that, right? right. Um, I can't tell you how many times that I had heard growing up that I would be dead in the jail, and I believed that. Right. Um, you know, that was the, the the cautionary message that I received, but it also was a affirming message that this is the only outcome that my life can have. You signed that contract. Absolutely. And so once I began to reverse engineer that, I began to question the universe and say, okay, well, if this is absolutely true in a negative, then it has to be absolutely true in a positive. Right. And so the first thing I did was to start the journey. I wrote the war in a letter. And, you know, I wrote the word in a letter to ask to be released from solitary, but I posed it as a philosophical dilemma. And, you know, I was reading Socrates and, and, and Marcus Aurelius and like all these philosophers. And so I started with the essential thing of, do you believe that, you know, I'm a man of my word? And I explained to him that when I came into prison, I had no plans on following the rules. In fact, I was going to be disruptive. Up to that point, I'd accumulated about 36 misconducts that ranged from dangerous contraband to assault on inmates, to assault on officer. Um, and, and if you believe me to be a man of word, you know that I've been truthful the whole time because I've always rebelled against the rules. And if you believe that the truth is essential to this, then everything I would ask you to do is to believe everything I'm about to tell you, that if you give me an opportunity to get out of solitary, I'm going to type these books up. I'm going to send these books out to publishers, and I'm eventually going to become a great writer. And it was the first and probably the only time I've ever got a letter back, a response from the war. And you know how that goes. In yeah, prison. You can send a grievance. You can send a, a kite and say, hey, we need this toilet fixed or we need this thing. You never hear back. Right. And he just basically said, you know, despite my gut instincts, I'm going to advocate for this opportunity for you. And he did, you know, and it still took about two years because they had to go through a series of different, you know, approvers. But just him writing back to me told me that the universe was aligned to what I believed I was capable of. And so when I got out of solitary, I took those handwritten manuscripts and I typed all of them up. You know, at that time, it was like four of them. Um... And I began to, like, get them printed out. And I would just send them to public. I didn't know, you know, you needed an agent or any of this stuff. I would just blindly send them out. I even I even sent one to Jay-Z um, when he was the president of Def Jam. And I still have the letter. I kept a copy of the letter. And I sent Jay-Z this letter. And I said, you know, y'all should start, like, rock Rockefeller literature. You know, and let me be the voice of the street coach because this is where I come from, you know. And I never heard back from him, but... <laughs> Uh, but but here's the thing that I believe about manifestation. I've actually met Jay on two different occasions. Mm. And so all of those things I believe that I started to write about and to think about 
um, began to manifest. But then it was like, okay, now I'm out. Now I've written these books. What's next? And so I just wrote down everything that I wanted to happen with my work. You know, where did it need to be? You know, I've created this body to work. What do I want to happen with it? You know? And so I wrote this list of things down that, one, I wanted Oprah Winfrey to read one of my books. I wanted to be a New York Times bestselling author. I wanted to turn my books into film and TV and to do all these things. And I want to write across every platform that a writer could write on. Magazines, You, you wrote this down while you still in prison? Absolutely. That's deep. Yeah. That's and then deep. I began to, like, write down in detail, like, what kind of car I want, what kind of house I want, what kind of partner I want. Like, all these things became manifestation tools, you know? And it was so mind-blown to people when I got out of prison, the way that I executed the things that I've executed. And people would always ask me, like, are you surprised this happened? And I'm like, actually, no. Like, because there was an agreement with me in the universe the same way when it was in a negative. Like, I wasn't surprised I got arrested. I wasn't like, surprised I ended up in prison. Like, that was a narrative I created. So why would I be surprised that I become successful if I've created that narrative as well? Shaka talks about life on the other side of prison when The Last Mile Radio continues. So I got out of prison June 22nd, 2010, one day after my birthday. So my last full day in prison was on my 38th birthday. You're listening to The Last Mile Radio, Sirius XM. I'm Chris Redlitz. And I'm Maserati E. That voice you just heard is Shaka Senghor, an amazing man who survived 19 years in prison, including many years in solitary confinement. He's now racking up success after success on the outside. Our conversation continues with Shaka as he describes going before the parole board. Check it out. You had this vision board. You had these manifestations that you believed in. Absolutely. But it took a journey to get there. Oh, no doubt. You did become a best-selling author. You yeah. did get on Oprah. Oprah, Oprah yeah. interviewed you, which yeah. is freaking amazing, that's right? Huge, yeah. bro, that's <laughs> but, huge. But again, yeah. like, you were in, you were, you know, really when you had that manifestation, you didn't have a date, yeah. right? Yeah, no, so I, I I was actually told that I was never getting out of prison because what I was in solitary confinement for was uh, assault on an officer. And for anybody who's been in prison, yep. it's literally one of the worst things you can do in prison. Absolutely. You, know, you can actually kill another person who's serving time and do less time in solitary than I actually did. Right. right. Um, and not get charged with a new crime. So I got charged with a new crime, received an additional two years. And, you know, when I went up to the parole the first time, I got denied, which I kind of expected. Um, you know, it's kind of like this this unwritten rule that we kind of have in our minds if you if you serve a long time. When I went back the second time, I felt there was a glimmer of hope because the parole age lady who interviewed me, like me and her had a whole cool banter going, you know, she was flirtatious, I was flirtatious. I'm like, okay, she voted me about this joint, you know? Whatever it takes. And, uh, yeah, whatever it takes, you know? And, uh, and she did vote for me. And then the person who didn't interview me voted against me. Mm, so I went wild. to a third party who hadn't interviewed me as well. And he sided with the guy who didn't interview me. Mm. And so at that point, I was like, man, they're probably never going to let me out of here, you know. And, and and I soaked and went through all the things, you know. And I remember going back to the cell block after that. And I had got one of my, uh, the galleys for one of my first books, which I self-published from prison. And I just remember, like, seeing these guys on the yard with my book, you know, and they was passing it around and sharing it. And I was like, you, you got to get out of here. You know, you got to get out of here and, and, and you got to stay in the fight, you know. And so, you know, at the time I, I went back to, you know, I went on a visit, I think the day after I found out. Um, and at the time I was dating uh, my son's mom. Um, and, you know, I just remember telling her, like, I don't want to send my family through this. Mm. You know, at this point I had 18 years and I know how to serve time. I just don't want to send her. I tried to break up with her on a visit um, and just kind of tell my parents, like, look, don't worry about me. I'll, I'll, I'll survive in here. Y'all just live your life, you know? 
And she listened, patient. Yeah, you know, I'm in the middle of the visiting room, like, bawling in tears, you know, because I'm, like, hurting watching them hurt. Right. You know, like, watching her. I I remember sitting in that visiting room, and I'm watching her being processed in. And I'm, like, at the time, you know, she's an incredible doctor. You know, she has, you know, a a full life ahead of her. And I'm, like, I don't want to hold you hostage to these people not going to let me out, you know. And, you know, even my dad had came up on that parole interview. was actually on his birthday, you know. So we're like, man, you know, he saw the exchange with me and the lady. And so I was just like, you know, I don't want them to go through this, you know. But she was like, no, you got to you got to stick with it, you know. And so I went back and the third time was the charm. So so I want to, you know, with the time we have left, I want to really talk about what you're doing today because you've gone from you know, being a successful author to being a criminal justice advocate. Now you're in the business community. Now you have impact on that. Can you talk a little bit about what you're doing today? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I'm in my I'm in my third role at a company called Navon. Um, and, you know, I've been with this company now for about three years. I started as head of DEI, helped build that department out. Then I joined the sales and success uh, culture team, which was like super fun for me because it's like I get a chance to combine, you know, all the wisdom from growing up hustling in the streets to, you know, this incredible sales team. And, you know, basically we make traveling expense easy, right? So everything related to your travel, um, you know, our platform performs in the most optimized way for people to get around the world, you know, especially, you know, business travel, but you could also do personal travel. And now I'm the VP of corporate communications. So I get a chance to work across the org to help tell our story to the world, you know, and it's, it's fascinating work. You know, it's, it's one of them things where... You know, growing up in the streets, you really, you know, you understand a hustle to survive, which is very different from hustling to thrive. Right. And, you know, there's this there's this romanticized idea that, you know, people in tech are just a bunch of, you know, uh, um, spoon fed babies who were fortunate to have a trust fund. And that couldn't be further from the truth in my experience. You know, the, the team that I'm fortunate to work with are some of the most, you know, innovative thinking outside the box, entrepreneurs um, and hustlers. I mean, the hustle in Silicon is unlike anything that I would have ever imagined, you know, so it's nonstop go, go, go. Uh, And I just feel fortunate, man, to have been, you know, a part of this amazing um, company, you know, we're coming up on our eighth year. Uh, We're still, you know, we're a late stage startup at this point, you know, Um, but to see it grow as a rocket ship company and then to see it bottom out in 2020 with the pandemic to where we went to zero revenue and to watch and work with, you know, colleagues who, I mean, built it back up to the point where now, you know, our valuation is $9 billion. You know, this is a testament to grit. That's a testament to determination. Sure. And all those principles, you know, that I live by, you know, manifestation, visualization, you know, writing it down. I see all of that in my day-to-day work now. So that's what I'm up to. I'm also an investor as well, and I'm still producing content. I produced uh, 60 Days In last season. I produced a film called God Said Give Them Drum Machines, which we premiered at Tribeca last year. Come on, um, man. <laughs> you know, a couple of best-selling books under my belt. I was on an album with Nas, a Grammy-nominated uh, album. So I forgot I'm, to mention that, too. Yeah, I'm like that's a Grammy-nominated dope. artist. So, you that's know, dope. Um, you know, and so, I mean, the accolades are just crazy at this point. Blessings. But I take it all in, man. I'm always in the spirit of gratitude. Like, you know, when I was able to do the, the song with Nas, like, you're talking about a dream come true, you know. Um, and quickly, I heard Illmatic. I was on about my third year in prison. Hmm. I immediately went and got a tattoo of Illmatic on my arm. It's the worst tattoo in the world. <laughs> um, but it's meaningful. Is, yeah, right. absolutely. And, for sure. and actually, like the, the the because it's the worst tattoo is how I actually met Nas because I told a friend of mine about the experience and he introduced us. And you know, Nas is just such a real genuine person. And so when he reached out, uh, he asked me to 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 you know be a part of a song. And, I, you know, this is in the middle of the pandemic. I'm sitting in my office at home by myself, and I get this text from Nas. He's like, yo, would you do something on the song? And I was like, what? Like, in my mind, I'm just <laughs> right. like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Absolutely, right? And then I asked him, like, when did he need it? And he was like, oh, I'm actually in the studio right now. And so I was like, shit. You know, and so I went and I I, I I just did a straight voice recording of it, you know, and just, like, send it back to him in about 45 minutes. 
And then I literally didn't hear out hear back from him to like, you know, a couple of days before the album dropped. And I was sharing my book cover at the time because it was the same color as the album cover. And it's like, yo, how crazy is this, you know? And he was like, oh, yeah, just wait till you hear our song. And I was like, what? Like, I made the cut because I didn't know if I made it. You know, which I, you know, honestly, when I when I think back, like, you know, having made it, it it's, 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 the, it's literally the best fit in the world. But even if I hadn't, just the thought that Nas would ask mm-hmm. me to be on an right. album to me was one of the most validating things outside of Oprah saying my memoir uh, was one of her favorite of all times. Like those two things from two of the, you know, one of the greatest readers and then one of the greatest writers of all time is like, man, it's the best feeling ever, That's you big. know, so. <laughs> so one last question before we wrap. Uh, we like to ask people, especially who have been just as involved and really understand the system. Mm-hmm. If there's one thing, there's many things that need to change, but one thing in your mind from your experience that you could change in criminal justice, what would that be? Oh, man, that's such a, a, a powerful question because it's not one thing. But I, I would say for me, you know, even as I think about my work now, the thing that's always been really important to me is ending the long-term abuse of solitary confinement. Yeah. Mm. I know that I am anomaly in a sense of like, I survived something that was intended to break me, um, intended to break my soul. Like, like solitary confinement is the most egregious and most barbaric and inhumane thing you can do to another human being. Um, and so for me to know that there are people who have been in solitary for, you know, five, 10, 15 years, you know, it's one of the most criminal things that I think that our system does to people. And if we can end that, you know, I think it will force us to address one, the mental health challenges that a lot of people who end up in solitary, you know, have, you know, that's part of like why some of the people stay in for so long, but that would be the one thing that I would just and it's the abuse of like keeping people held in a cell um, for for twenty three hours every day. And 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 to the listeners, I would say this: while you may not be able to empathize with what it's like to actually be in solitary, I believe COVID showed the world what it means to be isolated. Yeah. And you know, people were challenged. You know, during those times, like people were lonely. Uh, they were suicidal. They were, you know, uh, confrontational. Like so many things came up during the pandemic for humans because the reality is we're social beings right. and we're meant to be connected to our humanity. And when you isolate people, you begin to kill the essence of what it means to be human. Wow, that's powerful. That and and a hundred percent agreement on this side of the table for sure. Yeah. Definitely. So, Ashaka, you know, really appreciate it. You doing this for with us, and um, you know we've been on a journey. We're going to continue that journey Absolutely. together for sure. And so we really appreciate you coming down and doing this. That's truly an honor, man. I, I think this is like so incredible, you know, to have a platform where we can come in and tell our authentic stories in a space where we can just be and 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 you know speak hope into other people who are going through it. So you know, to my peeps who are currently on lockdown. I promise you, I am a testament that anything is possible. Uh, I served a total of 19 years, seven of those years in solitary confinement. And, you know, I'm here, you know, I'm in the world doing things. Um, and so I say, read those books, journal, uh, meditate, and be present with yourself and know that, you know, something is possible on the other side of the pain. Most definitely, most definitely. Gotta say it again, man. Presence is priceless. So thank you for blessing us with your presence, man, and Likewise. coming here and reigning game like this, bro. Real talk. Mm. It's been an honor. It's been a pleasure. For real, for real. Yo, Chris, that was a trip. Talk about powerful. He, he quite literally manifested his freedom in his life. That was nuts. And it was kind of amazing, too, that he had these visions of his success in the future sitting there in confinement the way he was lack of stimulus and still said i'm going to become a best-selling author man talk about not being defined by your conditions and overcoming circumstances that that's how you do it and it's really an issue today i mean there are over forty thousand people still in cell isolation today wow and the economics of that also it costs seventy five thousand dollars per year 
to have somebody in solitary, that's three times the average cost of just general incarceration. Wow. That is crazy. That is crazy. Yeah. How, how many states are still doing that kind of stuff? Well, you know, there has been attempts at reform, but it hasn't gotten very far. There's a few states that have pu pushed for more humane treatment, including New Jersey, Massachusetts, and a few others. But the issues are still largely unresolved in our country. And I, you know, I was curious for, for you, mm -hmm. what was your experience when you were locked up? Did you have to go through that experience? I'm sure you knew people who had to go through that traumatic experience. Definitely, definitely. Um, unfortunately for myself, um, I, I spent some time in a hole several times and it, it definitely is a soul breaker, man. I, I felt like um, if you ever seen Ava DuVernay's The Way They See Us, it was a scene in there um, when one of the young life, man, he was in a hole for a long period of time and you could just see him losing his sanity. And I remember having one of those moments and have, having to seriously make a decision like I'm not going to let this break me. And I started practicing meditation. I started really working out. I started getting heavy into my reading as well as um, my music. That really like saved me. And they give you like a little wind up radio in the hole. So I used to be heavy off of that. Um, but I, I feel like that that resilience allowed me to get to like my mental peak, if we will. I felt like mentally that probably was the strongest I ever been because my will would not allow those circumstances to break me. Even though I was yeah. on the verge, I was real close, but I would not allow it. Yeah, I, I you know, the, the folks that we've talked to, it's either it breaks you or it makes you stronger. And it doesn't seem like there's much in between. No, definitely not. I've seen people unfortunately take their life, you know what I mean, while we were in the back in the hole. And um, I've seen people break mentally and just completely crash out. And then, of course, we've seen the ones like Shaka, you know, where you just you got to make a, a very firm decision and stand on it that I'm not going to let this break me no matter what. Well, I'm sure we will be talking about this a lot more in the future. It's a subject that uh, needs reform. And we'll be talking to more folks who have had that experience. But for now, we've got to move on. It's that time, Chris. It's that time. And you know how we do it at this time, Chris. I got to give you your flowers, dog. I got to give you your flowers, big bro. You always show up and show out, man. So I got to give you your flowers. I appreciate it. And back at you. And I got to give you your flowers, you who tuned in. Again, presence is priceless. Thank you for spending this time with us and rocking with us. I hope you got your notepad and soaking up all this game because it's definitely raining. Game is going down. And we would love to hear from you. We would love to hear from you. Please tap in at thelastmileradio.org. Or you can hear this show or any show, anytime on the Sirius XM app. Most definitely. And I'm Maserati E. I'm Chris Redlitz. You tuned in to The Last Mile Radio. On Sirius XM. Oh, yeah. No lie. I, I've been on a journey for a while. Finally, I see the last mile. I've been on a journey for a while. Finally, I see the last mile. I'm paving the road to success. Hey, I'm paving the road to the best. Wait, I'm paving the road to success. Hey, I'm paving the road to the best. Wait, no lie to the best way. To increase the success rate Define odds against us even when it's unexpected. Changing the world by changing the way we view the world. It's all perspective.